Uh, I invite you to join me in the book of Philippians. Uh, we're going to look at these opening couple of verses. Uh, I, I'm feeling a bit of, uh, I don't know what you call it, it's, it's almost like culture shock. Uh, I, I've, for the last year I've been preaching entire books of the Bible in one sermon. And I want to look at two verses in Philippians today. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a, there's a, a little bit of a shift here we have to make. Uh, but I'm really excited to begin this new series uh, in Philippians that we've entitled Choose uh, Joy. Uh, in 2016, U.S. News and World Report, uh, st- a, a, a U.S. News and World Report study concluded that the United States was among the most depressed countries in the world. Uh, according to uh, the CDC, uh, there were nearly two and a half times more suicides than homicides in the United States in 2019. And uh, statistics, you know, statistics can be misleading, um, but I think we could all realize just through observation that our affluence as a country has not necessarily brought about the happiness and fulfillment that one might expect. We are a culture that is bent on entertainment and recreation and pleasure. We are pursuing joy, and we are finding it to be elusive uh, as a culture. Philippians is a letter that is focused on this theme of joy. Paul uses the word for joy or the verb form rejoice over 15 times in this little four-chapter letter. Uh, Paul presents the Christian life as a life of joy. And it is not to say that it is an easy life, right? You read Philippians and you would certainly not come away with that impression. Uh, Paul is in prison, as he writes. Uh, His missionary activity Uh, has been severely restricted. He had always hoped to get to Rome with the gospel, but somehow I'm sure he didn't think it was going to quite look like this. He thought he'd actually be able to preach in Rome. (laughs) And he's, he's, he's restricted in his movements and his influence. And he's facing the real possibility of death. He talks about it here in chapter 1. And the believers in Philippi at large were experiencing opposition for the faith. They were living in a morally depraved culture and society. And they, were conf- uh, they, they had conflicted factions within the church. There was a measure of division that Paul actually has to address. He actually calls out a couple people by name in the letter. How would you like that? Uh, you, you get a letter and you, your name is listed and it's not favorable. <laughs> awkward uh, when when the letter is read to the church, right? But, I mean, this is just the reality. So we're not talking about some, you know, just plastic smile, just got to be happy all the time kind of a thing. But we're we're talking about something, uh, when we talk of joy, something that's more enduring uh, in the soul. Uh, A couple of definitions that I thought were helpful uh, in this vein, G.F. Hawthorne uh, writes, Joy is not so much a feeling as it is a settled state of mind characterized by peace. Feelings come and go, emotions come and go, right? But there's a settledness to joy that even when I'm a bit frustrated or discouraged, there's sort of this baseline. There's this, this inner confidence that keeps me buoyed um, even when life is hard. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, 
Uh, joy is that inward peace and sufficiency that is not affected by outward circumstances. So again, it's not contingent uh, on what's going on in my life. I think that's a really helpful part of the definition there. Uh, and then Spurgeon uh, addressed this as well, a great British preacher. Believers are not dependent upon circumstances. Their joy comes not from what they have, but from what they are. Not from where they are, but from whose they are. Uh, really, really well, well put. Well, how does one gain joy? Of course, this is going to be what we're going to delve into in the weeks to come. And I think it's often where we get off track. Uh, I would suggest to you that you don't find joy by pursuing joy. Counterintuitive, right? But uh, I believe the scriptures would, would bear out that joy is a byproduct. So... The pursuit of selfish pleasure results in ultimate misery, right? In trying to just do things that make me happy and bring me pleasure, that is not a recipe for true joy. The pursuit of God results in joy. Walking God's path, following in obedience to Christ. Uh, after all, th this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, we are created by God. God knows how we function best. Uh, he's the one who, who crafted the owner's manual <laughs> on humanity. And so when we walk in his ways, according to his moral standards, uh, we embrace his values, uh, this is where true joy and fulfillment and satisfaction is to be found. So... Um, uh, the stage is, again, set here, I think, even in the opening verses of Philippians. I want to read just these first two verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, again, it was written by Paul and Timothy. Uh, we certainly get uh, the, the, the introduction of the author or authors. Uh, Paul was given a specific charge to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people of the world. And so Paul established the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey. And now, at a later point, Paul is writing to the church from prison to encourage them, to thank them. Timothy is included in the introduction uh, this isn't uh, unusual. Uh, Timothy or other co-workers are, are mentioned in some of Paul's letters. Um, but Timothy has a, a really close relationship with this church. Timothy was a young believer that Paul met on that second missionary journey. And uh, Timothy joined the church planting team. And so Timothy was part of the church plant as a young man. And then Timothy worked with the, the church in Philippi. We read about that in Acts chapter 19. He, he had a stint there uh, where, where he was uh, helping this church. And then Paul alludes in his letter here that he's sending Timothy to them again. Uh, maybe Timothy was actually a courier taking the letter uh, with him to the church in Philippi. So there's an ongoing relationship, not just with Paul in the church, but with Timothy in the church Uniquely, Paul does not identify himself as an apostle here in this introduction. Uh, 
this is probably an indication of the warm relationship that he had with these believers. He did not feel a need to in any way exert his authority. Um, and again, the nature of the letter is one of commendation, not confrontation. Uh, the church in Philippi had sent a messenger 1,200 miles from Philippi to Rome to deliver a financial gift to Paul. And this is essentially a thank you note that Paul is writing to them. Uh, instead of identifying himself as an apostle, uh, Paul identifies both himself and Timothy as servants or literally slaves of Jesus Christ. So I, I think something's going on here, even in how Paul identifies himself. He's identifying himself um, and modeling humility and selfless service. And he's really going to call these believers uh, to surrender their rights and to take the lowly position of a slave after the pattern of Christ. We're going to read about that in chapter 2. So even here, Paul's setting the stage here with how he refers to himself. Uh, the letter was written to the saints in Philippi. Uh, Philippi was a prominent city on what's called the Via Ignatia, uh, the, uh, the main highway that connected uh, Asia to Europe, connected Rome to the rest of the, the world. And um, you, you get just a little bit of a, of a glimpse of where Philippi, my, my pointer's not working today, so I, I, can't, I can't point it out to you there. But um, uh, Philippi was on a major highway. And perhaps of even greater significance is that this was the first church established in Europe. So um, this was a key threshold in the advance of the gospel. Uh, Philippi was a thoroughly Gentile city. There, there weren't even 10 Jewish men in the city. Most of the time when Paul would go to a, a new place, he would start in the synagogue, in the Jewish synagogue, because those people were at least familiar with uh, the Old Testament scriptures, they at least had a baseline of understanding about who God is. So Paul would start there. But when he got to Philippi, there wasn't enough people to constitute a synagogue. He had to have 10 Jewish men to constitute a synagogue. So uh, we, we get a sense right from the establishment of this church that this is something different going on here. This is a Gentile uh, city. And again, the first church on the European continent. So for many of us who maybe come from a European background, this is really kind of where our story intersects with the gospel, uh, where the, the gospel extended beyond uh, the Jewish world. Uh, but of course, Paul doesn't primarily identify them by geography, but points to a deeper identity, doesn't he? He talks about them or greets them as saints, all of them, by the way, uh, He's not just singling out certain extraordinary people in the church. <laughs> he's writing to the entire church, and he's calling them saints. This is almost an embarrassing title, right? We, we, we maybe in some ways don't like this title. We, 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 we know ourselves too well. We don't feel like saints. Um, but this has nothing, of course, to do with what they had done or what we have done but it is about what Christ has done. We are saints in Christ Jesus. Um, our lives are bound up with Christ. We have been made God's distinct people in the world. That's what it means to be uh, a saint or a holy one, one who is, who is set apart for a special 
purpose. And uh, we are saints. Whether, whether, if you know Christ, if you've come to the end of yourself and acknowledged your sin and turned to Christ, uh, you're a saint. Whether you feel like it or not, you're, a, you're one that's been set apart as part of the distinct people of God in the world. Uh, this is so critical. Um, there, there is an identity crisis in our culture. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, uh, all this talk, especially in the arenas of gender and sexuality, people talk about identity, and people are having to come up with and create an identity. It's like an avatar, you know, like a I got to put these clothes on and I'm going to extend the head and I'm going to, like, I have to create an identity. It's a lot of work to create an identity, right? But it, it speaks to the restlessness of our culture. We have an identity. We have been created in the image of God and we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, made his distinct people in the world. We as Christians, of all people, need to have a, a real clear sense of who we are. Paul also includes here an unusual greeting to the overseers and deacons. Uh, Here we see a a bit of Paul's view of church polity. Uh, He speaks of plurality. There's uh, more than one elder. There's not just a pastor, but there are elders or overseers. And there are deacons. Uh, And we see some measure of specialization as well. Uh, Different roles uh, that are assumed by leaders in the church. Um, It's unclear why Paul singles out these individuals. He's already addressing the letter, of course, to the whole church, but he singles out the elders or the overseers and deacons, uh, perhaps because they had a particular role in collecting the offering that was sent to Paul, and so he acknowledges them as well. Uh, The letter was also a call to experience grace and peace. So he pronounces a blessing over them. Uh, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a a blessing that flows out of the work of Christ, uh, flows out of the gospel. And uh, grace is unmerited favor. Uh, It's what we don't deserve, right? And peace is wholeness or well-being. So Paul wants them to flourish, to have a clear sense of their privileged position, to have an overriding sense of peace. So this is related to the theme of joy that Paul is going to unpack in the letter. And the the Hebrew idea of peace... um, would have certainly encompassed peace with God and peace with one another and peace with oneself, which is really what we're talking about. We talk about joy, isn't it? Um, There's sometimes uh, uh, things that happen, you know, between, uh, you know, in relationships that can impact our joy. But a lot of times our joy is just impacted by what's going on in our own heart, right, in our own soul. soul. And so Paul is extending this, this blessing Uh, wanting them to experience grace and peace. So again, in this this letter, as we're going to find, Paul uh, calls believers to a life of joy. Uh, But when Paul established this church, long before he wrote this letter, he modeled this joy in a profound way. So I want to spend the time that we have remaining here this morning and consider uh, Acts 16 
and the establishment of this local church. It's actually a portion of scripture that Nancy read for us already this morning. Uh, Lydia, uh, a businesswoman who sold purple textiles, became the first convert uh, in Europe, the first convert here in Philippi. But then Paul and Silas find themselves uh, embroiled in a local controversy. Right? They, uh, they encountered a demon-possessed slave girl who was being exploited because of her ability to predict the future. And this was, uh, this was human trafficking in the first century, right? She is being uh, used uh, for a specific purpose to make money for her master. And so when Paul cast the demon out of her, uh, that made her owners furious. Uh, Paul's act of compassion had cost them a lot of money. So they stirred up the crowd against Paul, and both Paul and Silas were arrested and thrown into prison. So this is where we pick up in Acts 16, uh, verse uh, 25, and we, uh, we, we kind of see Paul's reaction to all of this. Now, I, I do find it interesting that this all happened, this beautiful scene that plays out with the Philippian jailer, and his conversion, and the deliverance of this slave girl, it all happens uh, while they were on their way to the place of prayer. Uh, notice back in chapter 16, Acts 16, verse 16, as they were going to the place of prayer. Now it's a small, a small reference here in the text. I don't want to overblow it. But we find something similar on several occasions in the book of Acts. Uh, Peter and John encountered a lame man on their way to the temple at the time of prayer. Um, Peter was released from prison while the church was gathered in prayer. The church of Antioch, Acts 13, the church in Antioch was stirred to global missions and God uh, called out and raised up Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel to the world And it all broke out of a prayer meeting. Uh, God acts and responds and shows up when his people pray, pray in in the context of of prayer. So uh, scripture doesn't waste words. God doesn't waste words. Uh, All of the words are important. And I think we're told that little narrative uh, detail for a reason. It sets the stage for what's going to happen. It flows out of a commitment to prayer. So again, Paul models joy in this text. I'm going to suggest to you, and so I want to look at uh, some aspects of that. Uh, First, the expression of joy. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So after all of all that Paul and, and Silas had endured, we find them singing. Uh, they were not singing a lament or a dirge, but hymns or songs of praise to God. Instead of complaining or stirring up a riot or posting about ungodly local leaders on social media, They chose to focus on their confidence and their joy in Christ. 
Uh, this is, of course, the obvious demonstration of their joy, that they were singing, right? But I think there are other subtle indications of their joy in the text as well. It becomes clear in the text that Paul could have avoided this beating. It says they were flogged, actually flogged with uh, rods. Some translations say beaten with rods, uh, embedded with pieces of metal and bone that would actually pull away the flesh. I mean, this is a serious flogging. And because Paul was a Roman citizen, he actually appeals to his Roman citizenship later in the text. I'm thinking, why didn't you appeal to it up front? (laughs) He could have avoided this. It was illegal to flog a Roman citizen. So uh, Paul, Paul just took it. Uh, we don't, I don't exactly know why, but I think it does reflect a willingness to endure mistreatment. Um, perhaps Paul felt that he would, you know, not, not, not everyone in the Roman world, not everyone in Philippi was a Roman citizen. And so perhaps Paul was sort of casting his lot in suffering with the people of Philippi. Uh, He didn't want to be singled out because of his status as a Roman citizen. Uh, But it reflects some sense of calm, a willingness to endure hardship. There was also, of course, a great earthquake that takes place here, shaking the foundation of the prisons, rocking the doors open. Uh, Their their chains, their bonds were broken apart. Um, The doors of the prison were open, they were free, but curiously, they did not leave. This too, I think, reflects a spirit of peace and joy, not a chafing under their circumstances, but a confidence in the sovereignty of God. So this is the the, the manifestation of, or the expression of joy. I think it's seen in all of these things. I had a chance to be in the room with Tim Taylor there and Debbie on the day that Tim died. And um, very difficult seeing a lot of tears being shed. And yet there was an element of joy. I I can't totally explain it or quantify it, but we were able to kind of pray over Tim and with Tim. Uh, we were able to commend Tim for a life well lived, for finishing strong, for evidencing joy in the midst of tremendous trial since his brain injury for the last 20 years. Uh, talk about the impact that he had on my son Johnny, his friendship. Uh, he always would seek out Johnny, you know. Uh, we were able to talk about those things and reflect on them. We were able to talk about the resurrection. We prayed about the resurrection of the dead and the hope that we have in Christ. And uh, there was an element of joy uh, that can take place even in the context of suffering. And we, we see it here uh, with Paul and Silas. We see how it, how it expresses itself, how it shows up here. And so I think, how, you know, a bit sobering. I, I told our, our leaders, we had a leadership retreat yesterday, and I, I said, I'm really looking forward to the study in Philippians, but uh, it's going to involve a lot of soul searching because <laughs> I, I don't tend towards joy. Uh, I, I, I can be a, a bit jaded. 
Um, and th this is going to be a challenge for me to have to encounter what, what it means to live a life of joy. Uh, but I think it, it forces us to ask that question here. Are you, are you a joyful person? Are you characterized by singing and contentment and confidence even in the midst of turbulent, discouraging circumstances? Is there a willingness to endure hardship and mistreatment for the sake of Christ? Or, or are you an angry, bitter person? Characterized by grumbling, complaining, vitriol. It's a probing question. <laughs> Does the joy of the gospel uh, show up in your life? I don't, I'm not talking about personality types. I'm not saying you've got to be a oh, just perky, perky pat, you know. Uh, that, we're, not, we're not all wired that way, all right? I, I'm, not, I'm not wired that way. That's what we're talking about. But is there a settled joy that manifests itself in your life, particularly in difficult circumstances? That's a question I think we have to ask here as we see Paul modeling joy for this church at its inception. Uh, there's also uh, this aspect of the, the impact of joy that I think is so, uh, so inspiring in this text. Uh, what made their joy, again, distinctive was the circumstances. Paul and Silas had been falsely accused, misrepresented, mistreated, humiliated, right? They're stripped for this beating. Uh, they're beaten, they're imprisoned. But late that night, in the midst of their pain and exhaustion, we find them singing. Again, it's easy to sing when things are going well, when the government supports our moral standards when you are prospering, when your health is good. But when these things are taken away, uh, that's when our joy really becomes distinctive. It really stands out. And the text draws attention to the fact that the other prisoners were listening to them. They were intrigued. Their curiosity was piqued. This is not normal. This is not natural. And those prisoners heard the gospel that night, undoubtedly in the words that Paul and Silas sang, in the content of their prayers, but certainly validated by their joy, by their confidence. It infused a hope that transcended pain and misery. How else do we explain the fact that these hardened criminals followed the lead of Paul and Silas and did not escape when they had the opportunity? Somehow they were inspired by Paul and Silas, swayed by Paul and Silas. Their joy in some sense was contagious. Even though we're not told any details about the conversion of prisoners, something was happening there. And of course the jailer was impacted by their joy as well. I like this uh, painting, the depiction here. Uh, uh, here's the Paul and Silas uh, bonds are, are broken. They are free, but they haven't left the, uh, their, their, their cell. And the, the jailer comes in and realizes this and is kind of dumbfounded that they're still here. Why are you here? <laughs> right? And, and, and he's, he's on his knees here. It says he's trembling. Uh, he was a bit undone when he saw this. Uh, 
The only thing the picture's missing is all the other prisoners, right? We, we don't have a sense of that. But I like the, the kind of the, the, the pathos or the ethos that comes through uh, in that picture. The jailer was awoken by the earthquake. He rushed to the prison. And when he saw that the prison doors were open, he assumed that the prisoners had escaped. He took out his own sword to take his own life. Because if he let the prisoners escape... He would be put to death anyways. He might as well avoid the trial and the shame. Paul saw what was about to happen and shouted out and interrupted the suicide attempt. Again, when the jailer realized that they had all stayed, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Uh, What causes a hardened Roman jailer to respond in this way? I mean, this is not just your average citizen. This is a guy who'd heard all the excuses, had dealt with all of the violent criminals, right? This is a, this is a, a hardened guy. He knew Paul and Silas had been in prison because they claimed to bring a message from God. He knew why they were there. And perhaps he interpreted the earthquake as a sign of divine judgment, right? So he's in fear of this, this uh, cosmic... Uh, sign from God. But I believe he was also deeply moved by their calm and confidence. Who does this? Who, who, who stays voluntarily in a jail when they can walk out the door and gain their freedom? Right? We have a, a diffuser in our house. I had to look up the word again to make sure I was getting it right, but you know, you put the distilled water in there, maybe a few drops of some essential oil, maybe a citrus or a pine, or I don't know all my things. But it puts out this, you know, kind of vaporizes, right? And it, it just, it kind of pervades the room, sort of this, this, this pleasing aroma. Um, we know what it's like to be around a joy diffuser, don't we? got people that uh, in your life that um, you just come away from a conversation encouraged i don't know what the opposite of a diffuser is but we also know what it is to be around a joy sucker (laughs) right who's not exuding joy but sapping our joy (laughs) and we come away (laughs) discouraged right which one are you uh, the text is kind of this reminder that people are watching. Uh, how, how, you, how you respond to things in your own spirit doesn't just impact you. Your kids are keen off of your responses. Um, other people are watching and your coworkers are going to learn something about your responses to hardship or mistreatment or the things that frustrate you how do you respond to those things it's interesting the the two other places that talk about the singing of hymns remember they're singing hymns here and we think they're singing praise to god but the other two passages in ephesians and colossians that talk about singing of hymns it actually talks about not just 
the singing of hymns as, uh, as a vertical thing between us and God, but a horizontal thing that uh, we're instructing one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That when we sing praises, uh, whether in corporate worship or in a small group setting, we are speaking to each other. We are communicating something about our hope and we're encouraging each other. And so, uh, yeah, I challenge her, I think, to, to what it is to be a joy diffuser, <laughs> be a disseminator of joy. How are you responding in the trials and infuriating circumstances of life of which there are many? Uh, most of us have not been in prison for our faith, but we have been mistreated and misrepresented because of our stand for Christ. We face a godless culture, an antagonistic government that does not tolerate our convictions, our declarations of truth. How do, how do we respond in circumstances like Paul and Silas were experiencing? What is the impact of your joy in the lives of others. Well, finally, the source of joy. Uh, the source of joy. The jailer then asked that all important question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Uh, what was the jailer really asking here? Uh, the particular word for salvation had already been used in the text. Due to demon possession, the slave girl, uh, again, would predict the future, and she had declared... These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So this young girl, who is well known in the community, had said these men are proclaiming the way of salvation. And so the jailer at this point says, what must I do to be saved? How do I share in this, in this salvation? Jailer knew undoubtedly what the girl had said, knew of the transformation in the girl's life. Jesus had delivered her from the bondage of demon possession. And the jailer, at some measure, recognized that he was a sinner, estranged from God, deserving of judgment. Interesting juxtaposition in the text. The jailer realizes that Paul and Silas were free, even though they were in jail. And the jailer realized that he was in bondage, even though he was the jailer. There's a really interesting thing going on here where he needs to be rescued and delivered. And of course, Paul gives him the very straightforward answer that he needs to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The very simple response of humble faith, turning from himself and turning to Christ and clearly he did believe. There was genuine faith here, a change in trajectory in the, this man's life. He shared the good news with his family, right? He, he washed Paul and Silas's wounds, showing genuine love and compassion. He was baptized that very night, giving public testimony of his commitment to Christ. He invited Paul and Silas into his house for a meal, how could he take them out of the jail like that? Probably his house was attached to the jail. It was all one, one building. But he sits down for a meal with them as friends, as brothers. They were still prisoners at this point. But even more significantly, they had become brothers. 
And we notice again the narrator's comments. The jailer and his entire household rejoiced. They were filled with joy. So I simply ask you, uh, as we begin this study in Philippians and are challenged with the theme of joy, are you choosing joy? Uh, it will not necessarily just flow out of you. It will not happen naturally. Uh, Paul and Silas had many reasons to complain and moan and groan that night uh, in a Philippian jail, but they made a choice uh, as we were challenged with already in our worship time this morning, made a choice to rejoice and to sing. And I'm praying that God would bring that about in my life and in your life as well.